welcome back to a brand new episode of MFA Writers. I'm Jared McCormick, and I am, like always, so happy to have you here. We're now nearing the end of February, which means a lot of those December MFA application decisions are rolling in. So I wanted to take a minute, like I do every year, to say congratulations to those of you who got an acceptance. But more than that, I want to send a message to anyone who didn't get any acceptances this year. I have interviewed nearly 100 MFA students at this point, and spoken to hundreds more than that. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's that there is no one path to becoming a writer. Some people get into MFA programs on their first try, some get in on their second or third. Many great writers don't go to a program at all. So no matter which of those categories you fall into, just remember, what makes you a writer is that you write. So if it's really what you want to do, if it's what you really want to be, then don't stop. Just keep writing. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Jamie Lee. Jamie is a Southern California-based fiction writer and product marketer. She holds a BA from Dartmouth College and is pursuing her MFA at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Her writing has been recognized in the New York Times and published in Slanted Magazine, Mango Prism, and elsewhere. She also writes a newsletter called Creative Juice. Today, Jamie is going to read an excerpt from a fiction piece she wrote. Okay, thanks so much. So this is a short story that I wrote, and it is called Everyone Needs a Personal Brand. And it's based on my decade-long career in tech. For startups to have a fighting chance at survival in Silicon Valley, founders had to master blowing smoke as a second language. After months of posting to LinkedIn, publishing vlogs designed to maximize engagement, Daisy had become fluent. Tonight, hobnobbing to her fullest potential, she was sure to charm her way into Ardeo Ventures' investment portfolio. All she had to do was introduce herself to Ivan G. Damus the firm's enigmatic founder and managing partner. If Daisy didn't secure an investor or at least recoup the costs from their recent splashy partnership with San Francisco's famed three Michelin star restaurant, Poochie Pate was going under. The company had burned through most of their cash on PR ploys, trying to build buzz for their premium duck liver dog treat brand. What she hadn't anticipated was the surge of interest that brought down their website and only distribution channel down. 
To top it all off, their landlord had threatened eviction if they didn't address the mounting smell complaints from processing liver at all hours of the day in their cramped kitchen. Sage, her roommate and co-founder, pulled into the Los Altos park and ride and turned to Daisy. Don't forget, your only job tonight is to get into Ivan's pocketbook, Sage said. Call me when you're done. Daisy exited the Prius and crossed the parking lot. Before she could set foot inside the private shuttle that would transport its passengers from the city of Los Altos into the rarefied enclave of the Los Altos Hills, the driver shoved a clipboard and pen into her hands. Across the top, in capital letters, the attached contract read, Non-Disclosure Agreement. This non-disclosure agreement, agreement, is entered into by and between Ardeo Ventures, host, and Daisy Cho, guest, for the purposes of preventing the unauthorized disclosure of confidential information, such as trade secrets, intellectual property, and plastic surgeon recommendations. Gatekeeping. She signed her name and took a seat. In the short 15-minute ride across municipal lines, home values swelled along with Daisy's expectations. Filling the seats were esteemed members of Silicon Valley elite, three-time IPO'd founders, SaaS tycoons, and their trophy spouses. Everyone was polished and plucked to perfection. The collective net worth in the shuttle broke well into the 11 figures. Daisy wondered if the shuttle was insured. Oh, oh, Dolly from Poochie Pate? I'm Nasir Wani, CEO of Pop Q. Across the aisle, a man leaned in toward Daisy, eager to make her acquaintance. His smile glowed unnaturally white against the shuttle's dim interior. Wear an app that tracks all the creative ways modern couples are popping the question, from minimalist proposals to the skydiving in Dubai while live streaming ones. I actually think that couple lost their ring in midair. Anyway, let's connect on LinkedIn and I can hook you up with a premium account for six months. By the way, your pop-up dinner with Le Favier? Incredible. A Michelin star tasting menu for dogs? Genius. My Bernie Doodle loved it. She wouldn't eat anything afterwards except those pate treats. Brilliant marketing campaign, now she's hooked. Nasir flicked through his phone and pulled up a video of his lanky designer dog pawing at a bag of Pucci pate. I'll send this to you so you can use it on social. Daisy beamed. Never mind that behind the glowing press coverage and off-the-charts virality, the partnership had yielded a negative return for Pucci pate. So glad you enjoyed the dinner. It's Daisy, Daisy Cho. She extended a hand as Nasir's clamped down on hers like a vice. So, have you been to this thing before? Oh, for sure. It's my third time back, he said. He lifted his sunglasses to push back his chestnut ringlets and stared Daisy dead in the eyes. Ivan is a true genius and only associates with the best. I'd do anything for him. Ardeo is like family to me now. Nobody has gotten me this fired up to change the world. The rumor in the valley was that Ivan was an exacting mentor to the founders he took under his wing. Despite, or perhaps because of, that reputation, his mentees pledged faithful allegiance to him. The other rumor was that he made all his yearly investment decisions based on the interactions he had at these parties. Raising a round with Ardeo Ventures meant their massive bankrolls would pave over the unmarked trails of entrepreneurship and leave behind a one-way road to success. Ardeo had the Midas touch, and Daisy would give anything to be anointed. Daisy glanced down to check her phone and check the time. There was a new LinkedIn connection request, Nasir Wani.
Jamie, that was great. Thanks so much for reading and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You're a really good reader. You have a great voice. Oh, thank you. I used to have a radio show in college, so maybe that helped. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we talk about your writing and this piece specifically, I want to ask you about your upbringing, because you told me your experience as a Chinese immigrant to the United States has really shaped your writing. So how old were you when you moved to the States? Yeah, so I was born in Guangdong province, which is right next to Hong Kong. Um, And I moved to Queens, New York when I was three. So pretty much when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. So what what do your parents say about that time? Like, uh, I mean, you were a baby, so you don't really remember any of it. But what was it like for them? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have a crazy origin story. So at the time, I have an older brother and um, China still had the one child policy. So I am technically the illegal second child that was born. Yeah. Um, And also, my parents grew up during the Cultural Revolution. And so it just, you know, wasn't a really great place to have a family. And also as a second, if you have a second child, you kind of that's also really not ideal conditions to have a family. And so um, my grandparents had emigrated to New York and then my parents left shortly afterwards. So we all kind of reunited back in New York City. And how long did you all stay in New York? So not that long, um, just another three years until I was six. And then that's when I moved to Seattle, which is where um, I consider my home. Yeah. Do you remember that move? I don't really, you know, it's all been such a blur. I was so young. Um, yeah, I mean, I I remember bits and pieces of New York. Like I remember there were just pigeons everywhere. That's like a core memory of living in New York City <laughs> as a child. Um, I also lived in a really diverse neighborhood. So I lived in Queens um, in a neighborhood called Jackson Heights. And I remember it was just so diverse, like a lot of it was a big immigrant neighborhood. So a lot of folks were from Latin America. So there were a lot of Dominicans, Mexicans, Ecuadorians, Asian immigrants as well, um, particularly from South Asia, India, Bangladesh. And so I just remember just being outside, being in my apartment building and just these delicious food smells wafting up like at all hours of the day. And so that's another big core memory of New York. But I think moving to Seattle, I moved to a neighborhood called Beacon Hill, which is also pretty diverse, um, but definitely not as densely populated as New York City. So it became more of like a moving from like big city to a more settled down, like suburban-ish kind of experience, but still in a big city. Well, we were talking a bit before the interview, and you brought up this idea of model minorities and how East Asians occupy a particular place in the American racial consciousness. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and how that shaped your experience and your parents' experience in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. So I would say being Chinese is definitely a core part of my identity, core part of my experience. It shows up a lot in my writing. And the idea of the model minority, I actually would characterize it as a myth because I think it's just this idea that flattens the experience of a massive group of populations that include Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians into this really one-dimensional representation. Um, And it's this idea that, oh, you see Asian students who do well in school, you see Asian 
um, people in the workforce who are doing well. And then there's an assumption that just Asians overall are doing um, well in society um, when really Asian Americans have a huge disparity in terms of income, representation, politics, leadership positions, things like that. So, yeah, I think it's just a very, this really reductive um, idea. Yeah. And I think how that ties into my experience and writing and just how it kind of shaped my worldview is that I, throughout my life, one through line that I think about and reflect on a lot is I started my life and have gone from places of a lot of diversity. So for example, growing up in Queens, being in South Seattle, and then from that point onwards, I have pretty much entered into spaces that have been decreasing in terms of their diversity. Oh, interesting. Um, Right. So for example, like I went to this tiny school on the East Coast um, in New Hampshire, which is which is where I learned about um, like old money and learned what a wasp was <laughs> um, into Silicon Valley, where people like I know people who literally became like overnight millionaires. And right. so it was just like such a wild spectrum of experiences throughout my life. Um, and I think the tie in with being East Asian is that you or I kind of fit in really easily into any of these spaces because on the one hand, we're still considered a minority, but then I think because of this model minority idea where you see people who East Asian people in particular, who are achieving some success in business or school, you're like, it's not hard for me to blend in. And so in a way I've kind of been able to be very observant and see the differences in places that have a lot of privilege, have a lot of power, have a lot of exclusivity. And I've been able to be kind of like a fly on the wall in a lot of different scenarios. And that really, really lends itself to my writing because I'm also, I consider myself a pretty observant person by nature. And so I really love drawing into this experience of like, what is this in-group behavior versus out-group behavior? How is one population of people behaving differently than this other group? And so um, those are the ways that all of those different ideas kind of coalesce and find its way onto the page. And you told me you didn't grow up with uh, a lot of financial privilege. So I imagine that's also a particular lens through which you're viewing these happenings. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's like a total new dimension of like identity and intersectionality that comes in as well. Cause I think, again, going back to that model minority idea, um, it's really easy to imagine someone who is, you know, like a successful business person or something. And you're like, Oh, they must come from a really educated family. They probably had a lot of help growing up, but you know, that isn't always the case. How much does class show up in your writing? Um, It's showing up more and more, actually. I never explored it in my beginning writings, I think, because I was just trying to figure out, like, write for fun and see what kind of ideas I was drawn to. And then I think as I've gotten more introspective, I've noticed that my writing tends to circle on these themes a lot of, like, privilege, class, race, in the way that I can tell it. And I think the deeper and deeper I've gone, the more I've come up for air and been like, 
oh my gosh, I think this is what I want to write about. I'm curious to hear you talk about how important writing in general has been to you in just processing all of these experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like writing is just a way of clarifying for me. I think there's almost something so spiritual about it to me because it's like, for me, at least my mind is always just like such a big soup of different ideas, random thoughts, like processing different things that happened to me, trying to make sense of like something that just happened, what someone just said, where I just was. And I find that sitting down and just working it out on the page is a way of just refining and refining and refining. And it can happen over the span of like an hour or it can happen over the span of years. And like, I just never know until I do it. And it's definitely something that's always been a part of my life to, you know, varying degrees. My view of writing, I think, has evolved over the years where early on, I really thought it was all about the product, right? Like it was Mm -hmm. very uh, product focused. Like, what am I creating? What is the thing that I'm creating? And um, the more I've done it, the more I've realized that it's, you know, as much or more about the process as the product, that writing itself is like a way of thinking, right? Like I think differently in, in, in writing than I do just thinking or speaking even. So yeah, like, uh, that idea of it being a spiritual practice. I mean, why not? Like, uh, it's a way of getting in touch with a part of yourself that at least for me, doesn't seem to be there in, in other forms. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's such a low barrier to entry in terms of what you need to bring your ideas and what's inside out into the external world. I feel like the only thing that's closer is maybe dance because with writing, you need some sort of instrument, but like dance, you just like express with your body, but I'm no professional dancer, but (laughs) I think writing is like the next best thing, you know, like all you need is a pen and paper and your ideas and you just go. Well, you've talked a little bit about your writing journey and how your writing has changed over the years. I want to hear about that because you actually had a 10-year career in the tech industry before deciding to pursue an MFA. Were you writing the whole time that you were doing that job? Yeah. So it's funny because I'm not someone who is like, I was born with a pen in my hand, ready to write. Um, I've always been a reader. Like I've always been the child that has like a stack of books by the nightstand and like reading well into the night. Um, And I've always kept writing kind of on the side, you know, like have gotten involved with like school newspapers, wrote columns, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And in my adult career years, there's this idea of like creative shadow work where if you have this creative tendency or you want like a creative outlet or you have this creative voice inside you that needs to be expressed. And when sometimes you're not ready to embrace that yet, you take on work that brings you adjacent to it. And so I think that was definitely where I was in my career. I ended up working in marketing and I chose it because I was like, oh, there's a lot of writing involved in this um, career track. It's pretty, it can be very creative as well. And so ended up doing that and then, uh, reached a place where I was like, you know, I don't think my creative voice is being 
fully expressed in this type of role in this capacity. And so that is kind of what compelled me to throw myself in to um, pursue MFA applications and wind up at VCFA. Well, tell me more about this tech job. You said it's it's in marketing. Are you still doing that job? And uh, were you still doing it alongside the MFA? Yeah, so I started, so when I applied, um, which was in 2021, I was still working in tech. And I was, you know, like I said, like still doing creative writing on the side, like I had taken different workshops and like done readings and um, wrote essays here and there. And that was very fulfilling. And so for a really long time, I was balancing it. And I still am, you know, so I'm like the kind of person who likes to have it both ways. So I, like, when I was applying for MFAs, I was like, I have a lot of momentum in my career, and I want to keep that going. And I also want to explore my creative voice and tap into my skills as a writer. And so, um, yeah, balancing both of that was was pretty tough. I don't know if the path of a low residency MFA and like doing your career at the same time is for everyone, um, but it felt right for me. Well, let's talk about that piece that you read from. It seems to me that that's pretty highly influenced by your time in the tech. <laughs> oh, <world>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about the inspiration for that piece and what ways you see that tech and marketing experience showing up in your work? Yeah, for sure. So I would say it's less so about the marketing specifically. I think it's more just about like being in the world of Silicon Valley and being in the world of tech, which, um, you know, now that you know a little bit about me, I found it to be such a fascinating world. It's such a big, bold world. There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of, you know, major movements and personalities. And it, is also kind of, you know, isolated from the rest of the country, you know, like, it's not an experience that everyone has, and especially not folks from where I grew up and like people um, that I know from my childhood, family, things like that. And so it was so different. And I found it so fascinating. And I'm also, when it comes to just absorbing creative works, I'm very drawn to works of satire. And so, and I love like stand-up comedy. And so I, I also feel like I tend to find like the humor and like the positivity and things. And so that is something that I try to bring into my writing as well. And so the piece that I read, I would categorize it as pretty satirical. Um, a lot of things are pretty exaggerated, but they're actually not too far from the truth. So something that was really, really funny was that I read this piece um, at VCFA and folks would come up to me afterwards and they were like, this is so crazy. Like this idea <laughs> is so ridiculous. And then I had friends who from my my career in Silicon Valley read it and they would be like, oh, yeah, this seems normal. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that environment, Silicon Valley, is also an interesting place to explore class. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like just a place of extremes, you know, like, yeah, I mean, experiences that I would have a lot are just like being at work or like at a party or something or at, in some space where people are kind of rubbing elbows and there's um, this. So the short story that I read is sort of like that where Daisy is a co-founder of a startup and she 
gets invited to this venture capital party. And it's a space where like you are probably talking with people who are like multimillionaires, but then um, you might see someone at the bar or like the service people. And they're typically like people of color. They might be Asian. They might be like black or brown. And so you don't see a lot of those folks who are the ones that are like, you know, the VCs increasingly. Yes. But I think those were like the observations that I would have where it was like, Oh wow, this is a really wild world. Yeah. Okay. So you're building your career in the tech world but you're interested in creative writing and you want to take it more seriously. So you decide to do the MFA. Was that a difficult decision making that leap? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. So I don't know if it was, I think because it was, I was, I've been sort of building up to that moment for a long time. Um, And I made the decision during the pandemic. And I think it was easy in the fact that, that was a time where a lot of people were just looking at their lives and being like, what am I doing? The pandemic is throwing everything upside down. And now it's time to evaluate, am I really doing what I want to do? Right. Um, And so I think under those circumstances, it was easy to make a decision like that. I think the things that made it hard was that working in tech can be very, you know, it can be very cushy and it can be very, um, very safe. And it is uh, definitely a solid path to be in. But I think ultimately, I was reaching a place where it felt like I hadn't explored my creativity enough. And so I made the leap and just applied to a bunch of MFA programs. Yeah. Well, you ended up at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which is a two-year low residency program that allows for study in fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry, and literary translation. I imagine you chose the low residency route because you were working full time. But I'm curious to hear you talk about that decision and why Vermont College of Fine Arts. Yeah, for sure. So like you said, I at the time that I applied, I had a lot of career momentum. And so I wanted to keep that going. Um, and so it's really interesting because when I ended up joining Vermont uh, College of Fine Arts and then going to my first residency, there were a lot of folks who were kind of in the same boat as me, like a lot of folks who were very deep in their careers, didn't want to give that up, but also wanted to um, explore their creative side and really um, grow themselves as a writer. And so I think that is often a draw for folks who choose low residency. And another thing that went into my decision making is that I, at this point, um, I wasn't trying to be a part of, let's say like capital A academia or like as a part of an English department, I don't want to be a teacher or be a professor. And so I was like, I really just want to put myself in a pressure cooker kind of environment and really improve my craft for two years. And so, um, low residency really stuck out to me that way. Um, and In terms of VCFA, I went to undergrad in New Hampshire. And so there was a little bit of that like New Hampshire, Vermont nostalgia factor going on. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah. And then like, I think VCFA specifically, just I'll speak a little bit more about that. There's such an emphasis on cross-disciplinary learning and they really emphasize experimentation. So some examples are um, VCFA actually has... MFA programs in six different disciplines. So there's 
writing, writing for children, graphic design, visual art, music composition, and film. And there are folks in my program who, for example, are doing, um, are structuring their learning so that they're learning fiction as well as film. Um, and so you can really sample from different programs. And it's, I think that's something that's so wonderful about VCFA. So tell me about your first semester. Were there ups and downs as you were trying to figure out that balance between work and writing for the MFA program? Yeah, absolutely. So I, it's something that I'm still figuring out, to be honest. Like people are always like, what's your creative process? And I'm like, I don't know if I have one, but I think in not having one, that's still having one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, in balancing both, I think work comes first, like you have to finish that. And then when it came to my writing life, I am a natural, I feel like I'm a lifelong night owl in denial. I'm always trying to be like, I need to wake up earlier, but I will still just always go to sleep past midnight. Um, and if I had to characterize like finding that balance, I would just say I'm like a kind of a chaotic writer. Like I am more of a weekend warrior than I want to admit. Um, and I also just write like late into the night before I go to bed. So no process, just chaos. Well, now that you've kind of figured out that balance between work and the low res program. Do you have any advice for students uh, on how they can maximize their opportunity in a program like this and set themselves up for their future as writers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say it is, well, in terms of, I'll speak about residencies and then I'll speak about um, balancing the workload and then also just making the most of the program in general. So in terms of residencies, the way that VCFA does it, we have 10-day residencies every winter and every summer um, to kick off the winter and summer semesters. And those 10 days are just like jam-packed. There's like so many events every single day. There's social events after the, um, the scheduled programming. And at VCFA, what I think is really special is that our residencies combine all the different programs. So we'll have our residency at the exact same time that the film folks are, graphic design, visual arts, everyone from the VCFA student community and faculty like come together and can really intermingle and cross-pollinate. And so I love that. And I think my biggest advice in a situation like that is to really just get outside of your comfort zone and sign up for readings, attend the events that interest you, challenge yourself to have meals with folks outside of your program and just generally just talk and make yourself uncomfortable. Well, yeah, I was curious about those residencies because I was looking at the website and it mentions that the next one is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So are the residencies usually in Colorado or are they in Vermont? Do they move around? What does that usually look like? Yeah, great question. So uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts recently adopted a model where we do our summer residency in Colorado College and then our winter residency um, in Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania. And we, my first semester was actually on Montpelier, Vermont, um, which is where the VCFA campus is. But now VCFA has a model where we do residencies at these partner schools they're better able to accommodate all six of our programs together um, and provide 
just basically a better experience for all the students that are coming. So yeah, that's how we work with our partner schools now. And that's, I think, how it will be going forward. We also have international residencies. So the last semester, there was a group who went to Rome, which is pretty cool. And in my, this is before my time, but I know that they had other international residencies in Mexico and Slovenia. And for me personally, that was a big draw um, to come to VCFA as well, because I just love to travel. And what is more writerly than being inspired while you're traveling, being in another place? Are you planning on participating in one of those international residencies? Um, I don't know. It depends on where the next one is going to be. Um, they only happen in the winter, I think. And I'm not even sure if I have the chance to anymore because I think the next winter one is going to be my graduating one. So I think, yeah, even though it was a draw, I didn't get a chance to do it. So who knows? <laughs> maybe maybe if I stay on for another semester or two, who knows? Yeah. It always ends up happening that way. I remember coming into my MFA program with this big list of things that I was really excited about in the program and then graduating and looking at that list and being like, oh, I didn't even do a couple of these, you know? <laughs> I know. There's just always so much to do. And, you yeah. know, like I really loved VCFA's emphasis on experimentation and like cross-disciplinary stuff. And I like, so a little bit about me, I actually am new to fiction writing and when I was considering VCFA, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if I did fiction plus film or like fiction plus CNF? But then now I'm just like, you know what? I'm doing too much. I need to just, <laughs> I want to just focus and actually do fiction right and just be a good fiction writer. And so I'm like not doing anything cross-disciplinary or experimental. I'm just like <laughs> on the fiction straight and narrow, which is totally fine. But um, that's just a cool thing about VCFA. Well, I do think it's also cool that you get to do these residencies with students from various MFA programs in the school. What has that experience been like? I mean, have you have you had the chance to interact with those other students a lot? And have you, I don't know, have you seen that affecting your writing at all? Yeah, great question. So in the summer last year, so summer of 23, when we were at Colorado College, that was the first residency where they combined all the programs together. And that was so fun. It felt like it was just one big kind of summer camp, I would say. And so there were so many different events to go to. And like all of those different programs had their own events. So I tried to go as much as I could handle. There's just so much to do. Um, But I ended up attending a film screening and then hanging out with film folks and then going to different musical performances um, that were put on by the music composition students. Um, And then at night when folks are generally just socializing, like caught up with the film folks again, and then some film folks, film students came to the writing students reading. So there was a lot of that intermingling going on. Yeah, it was really cool. And it was just like one, like I said, just one big summer camp. Um, In terms of having it affect my writing, I, it hasn't explicitly done so, but I'm hopeful that something is percolating deep in there. Yeah. If nothing else, it's just nice to build that broader community with other artists, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So of all of the creative writing events that you've been to at residency, are there any that stood out to you the most that you really enjoyed? Yeah. So unfortunately this past 
winter residency. So the one that just happened in January, I was going to attend. That was going to be our first one in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. Um, but I caught COVID. So oh, that was no. really, really unfortunate. You only get yeah. so many residencies in a two-year program. And so um, I I was able to join things remotely. Um, but one thing that actually really stuck out from that residency was Micaiah Bay Galt, who is on the faculty, shout out. Um, she had a lecture about luck and how to be more lucky as a writer. And I've been contemplating that lecture for the past month or so, to be honest. Um, and she basically opened the lecture by being like, do you consider yourself lucky or unlucky? Whatever you think you are, you're probably right. And it was all about how to maximize your luck as a writer, because I think in this field so much is often just like a shot into the void. Um, yeah. And so, which can be really discouraging, but, you know, I think everyone becomes a writer because they feel called to write and like, who knows where everyone's work ends up and like what everyone's journeys and goals are. But I think there is a degree of like luck you have to sprinkle into your journey because it can be really grueling otherwise. And like her big takeaway is that like, there's even though luck is kind of this like ephemeral thing that feels like it's hard to capture, there's a lot you can actually do to put yourself in the path of luck. And that ties into my advice that I was sharing about just getting outside of your comfort zone. And she had this great, she drew on a, um, a study and I'm totally going to botch this, but it was about the participants had to walk down the street and then walk into this cafe and wait for someone that they were going to have a conversation with. And everything about that experience for the participants was staged. So like everyone in the cafe was a part, was in on it. They were in on the experiment. Um, and along the sidewalk, there was a $20 bill. And at the beginning of the study, they asked all the participants, do you consider yourself lucky or unlucky? And the lucky people found the dollar bill or the $20 bill on the ground and the unlucky people didn't even see it. And then oh, also wow. when they were in the cafe, they found that the unlucky people tended to just kind of wait and like reflect on their experience as just like very black and white. Like, Oh, I was just waiting in the cafe. But then the lucky people were like, Oh, I found this dollar bill. I struck up this conversation with all these different people and it was so cool. And so I think like that really stuck with me because it's really, I think, a lot of your success and like that serendipity is a big function of just how uncomfortable and like how willing you are to just put yourself out there. Yeah. So that lecture definitely really stuck with me. Yeah, that's great. So we talked a little bit earlier about how you came to creative writing a little bit later than some other people and you came to fiction a little bit later than some other people in the program. That was also the case for me. I was a teacher who wrote on the side for many years and mostly wrote nonfiction before I dove into fiction and creative writing more seriously. One of the reasons I wanted to pursue the MFA was because I felt like I needed to catch up. What has that experience been like joining the MFA program with people who maybe had a lot more experience with this thing than you did? Yeah. So, you know, what's funny, I feel like I, now that I'm in the program, I really am feeling like it's never too late. And also like everyone is just so on their own 
journeys and on their own paths that it's really hard to compare. And I don't know how it is in a non, in a full residency program. So I can only speak to a low residency format, but what surprised me a lot coming into VCFA was there's a huge range of ages um, and backgrounds. And so I thought I was going to actually be on the older end of folks coming into VCFA. Um, I'm in my thirties. And when I came into VCFA, there was, it was all across the board. Like there were a lot of folks who had come right out of undergrad. There were also a lot of folks who joined VCFA who had retired and um, were older. And so I think I'm somewhere, somewhere along the middle, but I really actually love that aspect of VCFA because everyone brings such different life experiences to the table. Um, and not just in terms of age, like, you know, different parts of the U S there's different types of writers, poets, essayists, and in terms of what people do outside of writing, that is super diverse as well. Like I've met folks who work in retail, folks who used to work in law, people who are in theater, education, journalism. And so I think that has been something that's been really great to witness. Yeah, my experience was almost exactly the same. I went to a full residency program and I started in my mid-30s. And so I thought the same. I thought I would be one of the older ones. And I was really right in the middle. People straight out of undergrad, people who had retired. Um, So yeah, I completely agree. The journey for each person is completely different. Right, exactly. And so with that kind of experience now behind me, I'm like, what's late? You know, like you can always reinvent and it's never too late. And so I think if there's anyone listening who's like, oh my God, is it too late to pursue creative writing? No, it's never too late. Never too late. Just go for it. (laughs) Just go for it. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Before we go, I want to ask you one last question, which is what is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? You know, I think better is that this is kind of a cop out because I just mentioned it, but I think like being in such a dedicated group of writers and artists has been really humbling and really inspiring And especially during residency, when you're face to face with everyone, um, I think that part has just been such a gift. Honestly, I think I'm really awakening a part of myself that has been sort of dormant in the corporate world. I'm not going to lie. And that part, I think I didn't know how much I had been waiting for that for so long. So I think that is definitely a great aspect of the MFA experience. Well, I'm so glad that you took the leap and I really appreciate you sharing your writing journey with us. I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks again for being here. Yeah, thank you so much, Jared. It was such a pleasure to talk a little bit about my experience here today. Thank you.